Walk, believe, or walk, Daniel. Walk, believe, or walk, Daniel. Walk, tell you walk, Daniel. Walk, tell you walk, Daniel. Hello, all, and welcome to this episode of Finneran's Wake. What follows is a book review of William F. Buckley's Up From Liberalism, from which at times I will digress, as is my want. Without further ado, here is my book review of Up From Liberalism. Were I to trace for you the lines of my political parentage, to chart, as if swabbed by one of those clever little ancestry kits, the intellectual tree of which I'm the humble fruit, it would include, at its uppermost branches, in the high, dense, remote ages of classical antiquity, Aristotle and Cicero. From the former, the Staggerite, I inherit a neat and tidy classification of every possible species of government, from the true and the good, monarchy, aristocracy, and constitutional government or polity, to the perverse and the bad, tyranny, oligarchy, and, yes, democracy. Democracy, as it happens, was deemed by Aristotle not to be the supreme political arrangement in whose name enlightened citizens ought to combine, but the least bad of the worst, the best among three undesirable alternatives. He preferred a government in which, above all, excellence was to be valued, a government to whose highest offices of administration and most elevated posts, only the truly meritorious, discerning, and just were to be appointed. It was a lofty ideal, to say the very least, of which we humans time and again fell terribly short. Such is our tendency in matters of the largest importance we repeatedly fail to rise to the occasion for which we're called. Take a brief survey, a brief look at our government as it presents itself to us today. Is it populated, I ask, by truly excellent statesmen? Is it inhabited by statesmen at all? Or is it, rather, overcrowded and debased by a gaggle of self-interested, unvirtuous, venal politicians? The latter, Cicero, the preeminent consul, philosopher, lawyer, and statesman of his age, was the last voice of the Roman Republic. And, oh, what a voice on which to end. What a man, unsurpassed in eloquence, unafraid of all threats to draw the final curtains down, especially in a land from whose rich, fertile, 
poetic soil, and so many fabulous speakers would spring. If only our own republic, herself in a state of irremeable decline, had such a voice with which to close herself out. If only our own empire of liberty, America, had for herself a national nightingale of sorts, with which to soothe her weary and listless citizens to their final night of sleep. These days of decadence, unlike those of Rome, might not be so intolerable. At the very least, they'd be more musical. Not since Demosthenes, the finest orator in Greece, had the world heard a voice so strong, lapidary, incisive, and refined. Cicero, when he opened his lips, revived the eloquence to which most thought Demosthenes alone capable of giving life. Through the vitality of his pen, from which a stream of nourishing Latin flowed, beauty breathed again. Not only were his oratorical skills unmatched, but his manners were unimpeachable, and his morals unmovable. He resisted the unlawful assent of Julius Caesar, the ambitious general's bold usurpation of power, and the infringements on liberty and the assaults on the Republic for which his right-hand man, Mark Antony, was, after his assassination in the theater of Pompey, largely responsible. A paragon of republicanism in the face of tyranny. I'm proud to call myself the offspring of Cicero. Moving toward modernity, to branches closer to the ground, I'm a child also of Alexis de Tocqueville and Thomas Jefferson. Tocqueville, a well-born Frenchman, journeyed to America at the age of 26. He did so in order to study the young country's penal system, from whose distinct features the French government, by which he was employed, hoped to glean some useful insight. Accompanied by his good pal, Gustave de Beaumont, whose intellectual curiosity and moral sensitivity led him to examine the institution of American slavery, he wrote a book, largely forgotten, called Marie. Tocqueville far exceeded his commission. With his quickness of perception, facility with language, astuteness to all peculiarities, agreeableness of manner, and breadth of mind, he captured within the span of a few months, the very essence of America, something evasive even to most Americans. The result of his time spent here was his two-volume work, Democracy in America. Central to the book's thesis is the tension between the following two great ideas, liberty and equality. Among Americans, he detected a stronger impulsion toward the latter. On this point, he says the following, quote, 
There is, in fact, a manly and lawful passion for equality, which excites men to wish all to be powerful and honored. This passion tends to elevate the humble to the rank of the great, but there exists also in the human heart a depraved taste for equality, which impels the weak to attempt to lower the powerful to their own level, and reduces men to prefer equality in slavery to inequality with freedom. Not that those nations whose social condition is democratic naturally despise liberty. On the contrary, they have an instinctive love of it. But liberty is not the chief and constant object of their desires. Equality is their idol. They make rapid and sudden efforts to obtain liberty, and if they miss their aim, resign themselves to their disappointment. But nothing can satisfy them except equality, and rather than lose it, they resolve to perish. For what it's worth, this insight, so powerfully expressed, so pure and cogent, so elegant yet sharp, stands at the very core of my political understanding. More than anything else, I can say with confidence, it's shaped my mind and colored my thought. No analysis, I don't think, is quite as perspicacious and apt. And, if you must know, I'm a partisan of liberty, not equality. That's right. I value liberty much more highly than I do equality. As an aside, most people to whom I pose this choice disagree. The thought of perfect equality is too strong an enticement, and, to that option, they enthusiastically sacrifice their liberty, proclaim their devotion, and commit their suffrage. I, in most cases, stand quite alone in my minority view. And, in this lonesome state, I'm often showered with criticisms and accused of harboring undemocratic sentiments. So be it. My view is unchanged. Always and forever, I'll prefer inequality with freedom to equality in slavery. Between the two, there's really no question. Perhaps, then, it's my love of liberty that arouses my affection for Thomas Jefferson, author of our country's great charter of freedom, the Declaration of Independence. I admit, though, that my love for Thomas Jefferson is complicated, at times somewhat unstable, inconstant, and unsure. Politically, I'd say that I'm much more closely aligned to his sometime rival and friend, John Adams, the great Irish conservative Edmund Burke, and the tall Illinois Whig, Abraham Lincoln. And yet, so much of Jefferson's spirit mingles with my own. Like him, I'm 
fiercely suspicious of a centralized government to which inordinate power is and continues to be ceded. I endorse, for the preservation of our union, an energetic federal government capable of carrying out its few basic, clearly enumerated and circumscribed tasks. But I fear the overreach to which this same energy inevitably awakens it. I find debt, huge, mounting, unserviceable debt, inimical to the prosperity of a free nation. I want it paid back, forthwith, and I'd not dare impose upon future generations the debts accrued by their thriftless fathers. I want the economy to be chiefly agricultural, and education edifying and universal. I want speech to be unfettered, and religion uncoerced. These and still more are my Jeffersonian features. Republican, in the term's original sense. As you see, I have a diversity of parents. Aristocratic and Republican, conservative and liberal, Greek, Roman, French, and American. Don't be shocked, then, when I disclose to you my two most recent forebears, William F. Buckley, Jr., and Christopher Hitchens. Between two modern political thinkers, a wider gap couldn't exist. The former was a buttoned-up, devoutly Christian Yale-educated arch-conservative who founded National Review. The latter was a somewhat disheveled, acerbically atheistic, Oxford-educated Trotskyite who wrote for Vanity Fair, Salon, and the Nation. I'll have more to say about Hitchens in another episode. For the time remaining, I'd like to speak about William F. Buckley Jr. and review his book, Up From Liberalism, which was a part of my reading list for the month of July. A few months ago, I completed his first book, God and Man at Yale, by which I was very impressed. You can listen to or read my review of that book here. While reading God and Man at Yale, among many of the extraordinary things by which I was struck was its relevance. Written in 1951, it feels as though it could have been published yesterday. Up from liberalism, published toward the end of that same decade, excites in me the very same feeling. The purpose of the work, for which Buckley is more than well-equipped and qualified, is to, quote, discredit doctrinaire liberalism and plead the viability of enlightened conservatism, end quote. It is always refreshing to have one's object made so explicitly clear. Today, obfuscation prevails as the language of most political writers. Buckley provides us with a useful definition of a liberal, a term of which only the nimblest minds and strongest thinkers are able to get a grasp. 
and even they occasionally let it slip through their fingers. Such is the protean nature of liberal, with which everyone from Karl Popper to Bertrand Russell to Milton Friedman has, at one time or another, grappled. Buckley defines them as the, quote, men and women who tend to believe that the human being is perfectible and social progress predictable, and that the instrument for effecting the two is reason, that truths are transitory and empirically determined, that equality is desirable and attainable through the action of state power, that social individual differences, if they are not rational, are objectionable and should be scientifically eliminated, that all peoples and societies should strive to organize themselves upon a rationalist and scientific paradigm. This is, in many ways, a Rousseauian, Marxist, utopian view. In regard to its appreciation of truth, it borrows a good deal from William James and John Dewey, pragmatists to whom objectivity mattered little. Like the Jacobins of revolutionary France, it exalts reason above all else, of which it makes a pseudo-sacred cult. And are we not today urged to organize ourselves upon a scientific paradigm, of which the infallible Dr. Anthony Fauci is the sole authoritative face? We're told again and again to trust the science by those who would have us believe, under that same science's aegis, that men can menstruate and the unborn are nothing. He observes that, quote, American liberals are reluctant to coexist with anyone on their right, end quote. Is this not demonstrably true? If in need of evidence, call to mind all the liberal-led social media giants, Facebook, Twitter, Google, Amazon, etc. Given the opportunity to silence conservative speech on their networks, to retard traffic to those who have a contrary view, to shut down enterprising new platforms like Parler, to stifle unflattering stories about a certain presidential nominee's son's sordid laptop, they never hesitate to act. Not only are they reluctant to coexist with anyone on their right, they find the very notion of doing so intolerable. If a conservative dares to question some orthodoxy of the liberal agenda, transgenderism, economic policy, modern monetary theory, immigration, you name it, he is met with, quote, intemperance, insularity, and irascibility, end quote. Very seldom is he greeted by someone excited by the prospect of an honest, productive, and genuine debate. When in conversation about one of the foregoing sacred topics, the normal laws of civilized discourse are, in all cases, suspended. All decorum is abandoned, all goodwill stifled, 
Thus, you have every groundless charge of misogyny, racism, sexism, bigotry, and immorality being hurled at anyone who, with unpardonable audacity, dares to question the appropriateness of allowing a 12-year-old girl first to renounce and then to declare her gender. Buckley marks a second characteristic of the liberal in debate. He adheres to the, quote, tacit premise that debate is ridiculous because there is nothing whatever to debate about. Arguments based on fact are especially to be avoided. Many people shrink from arguments over facts because facts are tedious, because they require a form of familiarity with the subject under discussion, and because they can be ideologically dislocative. Many liberals accept their opinions, ideas, and evaluations as others accept revealed truth. I absolutely love that phrase. Ideologically dislocative. And two good examples of this are the issue of the gender pay gap, and the disproportionate tendency of young black males to commit crimes. The fact is that women, who now exceed the number of men enrolled in American universities, enjoy commensurate, if not higher, earning power once they graduate and enter the workplace. In fact, most studies reveal that they're earning even more than the male counterparts by whom they're allegedly oppressed. And yet, with a willful blindness to these facts, we're still urged to believe that women are put upon and cheated of their proper income, taking home a measly 83 cents to their male colleague's dollar. Best to hold to this unfounded notion. To be disabused of it would be, in Buckley's words, ideologically dislocative. Buckley has this to say about the degradation of American discourse. Quote, there are several reasons why, in recent years, the discussion process in America appears to have broken down. The principal reason is the emphatic indisposition by those whose view prevails in critical quarters to accept any challenge to their intellectual hegemony, to recognize dissent from their conformity as serious. For those critical quarters, you can insert the media, the corporate news media, and academia. Here, Buckley offers a few remarks on the liberal approach to economics which still obtain today. Quote, Economics has become the pliant service of ideology. As an example, we see, all of a sudden, the established definition of recession being manipulated before our eyes, so long as it is uncomplimentary to the regime in power. Quote, if ideology calls for a $15 billion program of public health, the assumption is that the $15 billion are there, somewhere. 
It becomes pettifoggery and obstructionism to maintain that the money is not there, in the sense of being readily available and uncommitted. It is reactionary to insist that to produce the money it becomes necessary either to raise the level of economic production, thus increasing tax revenues, raise existing taxes, or inflate the money into existence. He neglects the fourth option of borrowing it, while his use of $15 billion as a hyperbolic figure is, in our age of profligacy, both demoralizing and cute. We see this time and again as, over the course of the past few years, one trillion dollar plan after another has been proposed and passed. Is any thought ever given to the funding of these plans? Seriously, by whom will they be financed and paid? Or have we all settled an agreement on the legitimacy of modern monetary theory, for which, in part, we have to thank our current downward path to the doldrums of stagflation? On taxes, Buckley has this to say, on which I'll conclude this essay. Quote, to the extent morality figures at all in taxation, it is an affirmative imperative. It is morally necessary to take from the rich, not merely to give to the poor. If there were no poor, it would still be necessary to take from the rich, egalitarianism being a primary goal of liberal ideology. Which returns me to my earlier Tocquevillian statement. I value liberty much more highly than I do equality. I'd rather be unequal in freedom than equal in slavery. The modern progressive, by whom Buckley's liberal has been all but swallowed up, would like just the opposite. He wants absolute equality, conformity, and leveling, no matter the cost. He wants an egalitarianism that is openly hostile to freedom, and a liberalism, strangely, that's intolerant of liberty. And there you have it, folks. My digressive book review of William F. Buckley's great work, Up From Liberalism. I highly recommend that you read it. Now, if you'd be so kind, subscribe to this channel, on which you can do me the honor of leaving a five-star rating or review. And if you get the chance, visit my sister podcasts, Numa by Daniel Finneran, that's P-N-E-U-M-A, and Finneran's Wake for Kids 
And with that, I bid you farewell from Finnerin's Wake. Shout, 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 shout,